Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you please open them with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and verse 18. Surprise! And I know some of you this past week have been reading, hopefully reading, chapter 3 in preparation for this morning, and so I apologize if you had, but the cat's out of the bag. I wanted to provide you this morning with a physical illustration of what we saw textually, if you were with us last week, where following creation's conclusion and day seven's rest in chapter one, we then ran into chapter two and verse three's words, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And we weren't expecting that, were we? Now, we thought it was all over, we who had studied through chapter 1 and then to the end of the first couple verses of chapter 2. We thought it was all over and that we then found ourselves with 20-something more verses on the same matter in which we saw together, if you were with us, we saw together how all of that extra served as an appendix or an addition, if you will, wherein our author provided us with further details regarding God's preparation of the place where people were to dwell with him and in what our roles in this garden were to look like. And so today, by comparison, you came expecting chapter 3 only to discover, ha, we are in chapter 2 still. And we're going to see together in the time that follows what, at least in my opinion, ought to be seen as an appendix to that which we saw last week. Meaning, we're going to elaborate this morning on verses 18 through 25 because I believe that they provide us clarity regarding manhood and womanhood, their roles, their relationship, responsibilities, and God's purpose behind these distinct categories. And I believe we all need to hear these things. And so I'm only kidding about the physical illustration, although I think it fits. I'm not kidding about the need to elaborate, because while this subject of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood isn't new, our culture, as many of you are well aware, has an enhanced interest in it for reasons that are fairly obvious. I mean, we live in a day where pluralism reigns, where the ultimate is unappealing, if even unattainable, and where everybody is considered equal. We want equal rights, equal representation, equal opportunity, even equal identity. I mean, we're, we're so hung up as a culture on equal that we see the need to ensure this in every sphere of existence. We've even begun, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we've even begun to redefine reality to this end. Now, I'm not opposed to equality. I'm, it's not a bad thing in any way. I think equality is great in politics, economics, society, education, as it is generally defined. And I say generally because this is a subject so broad and it is a term so loose that unqualified endorsement is a very dangerous thing. And so as it pertains to the subject of our text this morning, while we have seen in God's creation of men and women in his image an equality of personhood and dignity, I don't believe this extends to equality in roles and responsibilities. Let me say that again. We have seen together, if you have been with us, in God's creation of men and women in his image, we have seen an equality of personhood and dignity. But I don't believe that this extends to equality in roles and responsibilities. And so for that reason, and in the jargon of this juggernaut, I am a complementarian, not an egalitarian. And we're going to 
you're unfamiliar, we'll define these terms in just a moment. And I pray then by God's grace, we'll see which of them is most consistent with God's word and why holding to the biblically correct position is so important. So with that said, we invite you to follow along and read as, or as I read our text. Genesis 2, and we'll begin with verse 18. Our author writes, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground of all of the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And may God bless the public reading of his word. So church, as I said earlier, chapter 2 serves to zoom the camera lens on creation, if you will, specifically about what God has accomplished, I believe, regarding people. So it makes it clear that this, there's something tremendously important here that we need to see together. Because if in chapter 1, in chapter 1, if the point regarding people was that they're made in God's image, which we saw together, then here in chapter 2, there's something more specific being addressed. Namely, in my opinion, how men and women are different. So if chapter 2 was focused on how they're the same, here in chapter 2 we see an addition, the elaboration helping us to see that they are, in fact, different. And you don't, don't miss how all of this takes place prior to that which you thought we were going to examine today, chapter 3, in the fall. And so that is, all of this is before sin stained God's design, which is doubtless why later Jesus and then the Apostle Paul after him both used Genesis chapter 2 when answering questions about how men and women were to relate to one another. And so our text is of great significance for us this morning as I believe it explicates for us how we as men and women were designed to relate to one another. So this isn't a suggestion. This is the designer's instructions. And before we consider them as promised, let me Go ahead and define those two terms I mentioned earlier, complementarianism, egalitarianism. Let me go ahead and give you de definitions, if you will, for both of these so that as we move and as I use them later on, we're all on the same page as to what's being referenced. And so let me go ahead and begin with complementarianism. Well, my definition is, is simply an adaptation of one given by my favorite uh, theologian, Pastor John Piper. So I'm defining a complementarian along with Piper as one who holds to the conviction that God created human beings as male and female in the image of God, equal in worth, and both heirs of the grace of life, both fully capable of belief in Jesus, redemption through Jesus, and sanctification for Jesus, designed by God and appointed in his word for some distinct and complementary roles in life, owing to the fact 
that they're male and female. And so I'll give you that one one more time. So just so that everybody's on the same page. A complementarian is one who holds to the conviction that God created human beings as male and female in God's image, equal in worth, both heirs of the grace of life, both fully capable of belief in Jesus, redemption through Jesus, sanctification for Jesus, designed by God and appointed in his word for some distinct and complementary roles in life, owing to the fact that they are male and female. By contrast, the egalitarian is one who shares the belief that God's creation is of human beings as male and female in his image, both heirs of the grace of life, capable of belief in Jesus, redemption through Jesus, and sanctification for Christ. But they believe that in Christ, distinguishing sex-based roles are all done away with, such that, just as an example, a husband's manhood does not imply any unique leadership role Neither does a woman's womanhood imply any unique role of submission. The point, this position, has massive implications for society, and, but even more so for the church, as we'll see a little later. But just for right now, this is, this is how I'm defining these two terms, where the most significant difference regards the special and distinct responsibilities that come with being male and female. So complementarians say yes, there are such distinctions, and the egalitarians say no. So now let's see together what the Bible says. And to this end, a first observation that I believe we need to make from our text is that creation's order reveals a distinction. Creation's order reveals a distinction. You, you notice how in our text the fact is emphasized that man was formed first. Now in verse we didn't read, but in verse 7, we're told that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's not until verses that we read, verse 21 in fact, that we see woman arrive on the scene, unsurprisingly while man naps. But the point remains, man was formed first. We're good at napping. Much happens while we're asleep, men, of which we are unaware. And yet God is sovereign over all. Man was formed first. It's a fact that the Apostle Paul affirms later in 1 Timothy 2.13, where there, speaking of what took place in the garden, he specifically states, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. At which point, critics may respond and respond with the familiar, well, so what? So what? And so what, what, what does this prove? And what does this matter? To which we might say to the first, well, what does it prove? Well, it proves... Textually, God did not form man and woman at the same time. He didn't take a single lump of clay and simultaneously fashion two living beings from it. He started with man, and then later he formed woman out of man, which leads to the second concern. And our response, does it matter? You bet it does. You bet it matters. You can't, could God have done it differently? Certainly. I mean, if he could bring into being everything that is, then he most certainly could have chosen any order he liked. And since we know that God does nothing willy-nilly, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, as Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 32.4, then we can know the order that we have, as given us in the scriptures, is significant, which reveals as John Piper words it, that there is a firstness of responsibility that falls to the man. A firstness of responsibility. Now, this isn't an issue of superior value. We saw that was settled back in chapter 1, verse 27. So this isn't an issue of value. This is an issue of a sinless man 
in childlike dependence on God, being given a special role or responsibility. Now, there might be some at this point who would respond, well, fine, Andrew. If, if man's order in creation is significant, as you say, well, then does this not suggest that animals are even more important? Because weren't they created before even man was? It's fair criticism, right? But it's one that dissipates when you remember the distinction between those made in God's image and the rest of creation, along with the importance that we're given in biblical birth order, meaning there's no instance in the scriptures where, say for the purpose of our illustration, say Abraham and Sarah, there's no instance in scripture where Isaac, their son, is seen of second, as having secondary significance because his dad already had a bunch of cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So livestock don't share the same significance in scripture as people do, just as they don't share God's image. And further, if the biblical authors, as we've already noted, saw it of significance to point out that man was created first, as Paul did, then surely we'd be wise not to dismiss that. And friends, I, I should think that as an observation for us this morning, this is one that we could all appreciate. If we accept this book, God's word, to be divine truth without mixture of error, then certainly we can accept that what's contained in it there has been so to present and record, to communicate to us God's purpose, his plans, and his person. And so he clearly, according to the scripture, purposed for man to be first. And as first, man was morally responsible. Man was morally responsible, and let me explain what I mean by that. In verse 16, following God's placing of the man in the garden to work and to take care of it, or if you were with us last week, we saw better to worship and obey. So prior to God's placing, or after God's placing of man, we see here in verse 16, God commands him this way, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So that, that edict, the first and the only one that's given us in the garden and which carries with it the most extreme of consequences if broken, this edict is given to who? Adam, right? When? Prior to woman's creation. You see that? And further, there is no record of this command being repeated, at least in the scriptures, following Eve's creation. So it seems, if we go off of what we've been given by God, it seems to have been given only to Adam. And yet, as we'll see together next week, when we get to chapter 3 and to the serpent's tempting question, did God really say? The woman responds immediately, and she says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say. So Eve clearly knew what the serpent was alluding to, where I believe her understanding came because her husband had told her all about it. A responsibility distinguishing man from woman. But it's one that in no way implies greater value or importance. And church, this is where we so often, I believe, get derailed. Because it's in our desperation for significance that we fail to see different, like we talked about with the kids, as having the same or being the same. I mean, we, we, what we can't seem to grap, gra, grasp or get our minds around is how anything that's not exactly alike can have the same value. And so we try to force 
because of our inability to get this concept. We try to force everybody to be exactly the same. We, we have to all behave in a certain way. We have to dress in a certain fashion, speak in a certain manner, accept certain things, and perform certain jobs. In, in short, we have to find unity in our humanity, in conformity, which I find ironic seeing our world is so hell-bent on everybody getting to be who they want to be. The problem is, is if you, who you desire to be doesn't fit with the model that's been accepted by our culture, and you believe there actually might be roles that we feel distinct from one another, then you quickly get kicked off the island of sameness, don't you? Because to say that there are certain things that certain people can't do is to place limits on others, and we don't like limits, not a one of us. And yet what we've seen so far is that creation's order reveals distinctions. Man was given the moral pattern first, not woman. But in a third point, we see man is actually interrogated first. Man is interrogated first. For those who get to chapter 3 this past week in preparation, this is a benefit for you because you're familiar with what's coming. And so you know how following man and woman's breaking God's command, when God comes to visit, they hide. At which point God knows everything, asks Adam, where are you? And whereupon Adam starts to do the hem and haw thing and he continues to squirm as God ratchets up the questioning and he begins first by pointing fingers at his wife and then he starts pointing fingers even at God. And in addition to being an incredibly painful read as you just cringe hearing this man make excuses, in addition to this, you can't help but at least be aware of the fact that it was Eve who ate the fruit first, listened to the serpent. And yet, God doesn't address her, does he? Why? And I believe the most obvious answer and the most consistent, considering all that we've seen to this point, is that God gave to the man a primary responsibility for the moral life of the garden. And therefore, he had a primary responsibility for the failure to live by it. Now, this by no means excuse the woman for her actions as a morally accountable being, just as was man in, made in God's image. Man's actions or his inactions, if you will, in no way relieved her of her personal individual responsibility to know and obey God. But the point is, God looked to the man as the one who'd failed to be the moral and spiritual leader. And church, this idea of, of, a, of a man or a father's responsibility to lead is one that's received a great deal of attention in evangelical circles. But more recently, praise God, I, I've seen it even more within secular circles. If you've been dri driving around town, certainly you've seen the billboards with hashtag dad life. I mean, even dad jokes, dad time. I mean, dad jokes are supposed to be lame, but the emphasis is still there, right? This growing awareness on the need for men to be what they've been designed to be. Now, one psychologist, Dr. James Dobson, I'm sure many of you would recognize his name. He's for years been sounding the alarm rooted in the paradigms established here in Genesis 2. And in his book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, he says this. A Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. 
In my view, and this is Dobson writing, in my view, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. So church, God established distinct roles and responsibilities for men and women as evidenced by his order in creation, by man's receipt of the command, by man's interrogation by God, and fourth, by the object of Satan's attack. The object of Satan's attack. So whereas we know that the serpent, come Genesis 3, came to the woman, not because of weakness or some other deficiency as we so often associate with matters of order. It wasn't like the man was strong and the woman just wasn't. So Satan knew he couldn't take the man down, so he had to come to the one who would be the quickest to cave. No. And if that thought is subtly floating somewhere in the back of your mind, throw it out because that's not from God. That's from the adversary who wants to, to confuse the subject, wants to get us riled so that we can't see what is actually God's point here which I believe is that Satan always attacks God's words, his purposes, and his patterns. Satan always attacks those things so that when God says, do this, Satan's response is, don't do it. If God says, don't do it, Satan's response is, do it. If God says, there are distinctions that I have designed, you have a special role, Adam, Satan says, no, you don't. That's chauvinist. How dare you say that and limit someone else to something that they can't be or do? Who's to say that they can't? And so, because God made Adam the spokesman and the moral guardian in creation, Satan came straight to Eve in order to reverse the design and tempting her to do that which should not have been done. So as Piper explains it, Satan spurns. Satan spurns the order that God has established and he simply ignores the man. He takes up his subtle battle with the woman. And in doing that, he makes man into exactly what he wants him to be. A silent, withdrawn, weak, fearful, passive wimp. And Piper makes clear a masculine wimp is a very dangerous person. Because in one moment, he's passive, follows his woman around. The next thing, he's pointing fingers, blaming her for all of his problems. And Satan just laughs. And says, now I've created such confusion of roles, they will never sort this thing out. Never. They'll look at an abusive man and say, you just need to start being a little more passive when you're around women. And he'll say to the abused woman, you just need to be more assertive when you're around men. And they never get to the root of the problem. But God did. Confronting Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In other words, Adam, you were listening when you should have been leading. Now, church, I don't know if you're, you're like me, you know, one who can give a gift, write something, paint something, take something, and then completely forget that you had done that thing just a short time later. God does not do that. God's not like that. God's not like the, the, the person that came up about, a, it's probably been about three or four weeks now, saw me wearing a certain sweater and said, man, that's a nice looking sweater. Who gave that to you? When'd you get that? Uh, and the individual who inquired was in fact the one who gave that to me. He gave it to me for a gift. Um, so, And it wasn't an intended pat on the back for their great taste. It was just they'd completely forgotten that they'd actually given the gift to me. But have you ever had that happen? Church, God's not like that. 
God doesn't forget the reason for which he gave things and to whom he gave them and when. God's not like that. He's not like us. He doesn't change, and neither does his word. And so the roles he established for men and women, they're the same, just as they were given us here in Genesis chapter 2. He created man first. He made him the moral pattern for the garden. He held him accountable for failure first. He punished him for falling in line with God's arch enemy when Satan lured man and woman into this great role reversal at the fall. And we'll look more and more at that in more detail next week. But right now, I want to transition just slightly to, to attempt to address how this distinction that we've established exists, how this distinction relates to two establishments. And the first is directly referenced in the words that we read earlier. The second is related to that which is referenced in that it's typified by the first. So, namely, marriage which typifies Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so, simply regarding roles in marriage, I would hope that those would be apparent, considering all that we've said to this point. The role of a husband is to clearly provide, to lead, protect, encourage, challenge, convict, pray for, disciple, discipline, love, and serve, all of those things. As the Apostle Paul informs us, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And so for Paul writing there, he, he was looking back, pointing back to this passage in Genesis 2.24. He was noting the role of a husband and a wife was, in his words, a profound mystery. That's in Ephesians 5.32. And it wasn't a mystery for him because it was hard to understand. It was clear. For Paul, it was abundantly clear what a man and a woman were to be. The mystery was because they pointed forward to something far greater in that the interaction between a man and a woman typified, pointed forward to Christ's love for his bride, the church, where, as Paul makes clear in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, wives were to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, there's a lot that we could say regarding that subject. And, and we did, if you were with us, when we walked through Ephesians a number of years ago. And so right now, all I want us to see is, is how there's consistency here within the scriptures. As all that we've seen in Genesis. Now, Paul does not relay or convey the roles here in marriage to be equal. As we've just looked at in, in, in Genesis. Paul doesn't say that they're the same, where both a husband and a wife based on the definitions that we've given, could trade out roles and still be faithful to this mysterious establishment to which they are pointing forward. These roles are tied uniquely and distinctly to one's manhood or womanhood, while at the same time revealing that they have a shared dignity in that they both are picturing forth something greater. Now, I've not stated it in regards to these roles within marriage, just assumed it, but in our day and age, really, in any assuming is dangerous, and so let me just state it, but the marriage that's described here in our text, so the roles that are in question, are between a man and a woman, where those two are tied explicitly to biological sex, not gender identity, and so just as, as regards men or, or husbands this morning, this is a call not to exalt ourselves over women, to domineer, to belittle, rather, this is a call to stoop down and to take responsibility to serve be a servant leader and for women or wives this morning this isn't a call to undermine or to 
cut down to usurp, feel threatened by and, and made less of by men. Rather, this is a call to walk beside in loving support, enabling by your complementary giftings a flourishing of relationship. And so that's the first establishment that we're given in which these roles are featured. The second, then, is the church. And this is where I, I believe there's been a lot more confusion and conflict. And I say that simply because I don't know that many in their marriages that are willing to go to blows and to leave when, say, a wife happens to make more money than her husband. And the only husband that has a problem with his wife making more money than he is is just an idiot because more money at the end of the day is more money. And I'm, I'm, that may be harsh, and, and if that's you and you're struggling, I apologize because I'm certain the matter is more complex. I'm trying to just make the point. In that instance, a husband generally wouldn't get so angry as to leave his family because of an apparent role reversal. And yet, that is exactly what has racked the church because of the roles of men and women in Christ's body coming under increasing pressure, most of which can be traced to uh, an understanding, a misunderstanding in my opinion, that man and manhood and womanhood really have no distinct roles because now in Christ Jesus we're all the same. But church, besides being a misapplication of Genesis 3.28, which is the lonely proof text that's appealed to in this instance, Besides being a misapplication of that one text, we've seen already from the very beginning God intended distinct differences in men and women's responsibilities. And so when we get to the New Testament and we get to places more particular like 1 Timothy 2 and Paul's addressing women's roles in the church, and we, we see how he roots all of the things that he says in that passage just as we've seen this morning in the passage we've examined. And you've got to do some serious hermeneutical gymnastics to try and conclude that every role in the church can be filled by either a man or a woman because it really doesn't matter since we're all equal in Christ. Now, clearly, we aren't for that purpose. But does that mean we're of lesser value? Absolutely not. And church, again, I'm going to point that out because no matter how regularly we say it, the moment that our ears hear, you can't be because you're a... Oh, heart starts to pump. My face starts to flush. My wife gets ready to, what do you mean? I can't. Where'd you get that? You ever wondered why that reaction follows? As natural as that response is. And you could say, well, it's because of the injustice of it. But do we respond in that way to all injustice? No, I would argue not. And so I believe our heart's anger at this perceived inequality is rooted in our wickedness and our rebellion against God's original design. And church, rather than allowing our understanding of who does what to be dictated by the prevailing principles of our day, the spirit, if you will, of our age, we've got to do all that we can to ensure our views, our beliefs align with God's word, where who we are as men and women isn't tied to the temporary roles that we fill in time. Who we are is rooted in a person that we know in eternity. Because I believe that if our identity is rooted in who we are in Christ, then we're not going to strive to contradict his word. And we won't be discontent in the roles that he's designed us to fill. Why? Because those roles are nothing more than the means 
the channel by which we glorify him. While those that we are, those who, while who we are, and, and where we find our fulfillment will always be the same because he never changes, and that's where we find those values. So, friends, this morning I pray if you're here, maybe you've been struggling with, with who Christ has made you to be, asking that question and the role that you're fit to fill. I hope and pray that you've seen how God designed us to fill roles specific to who he has designed us to be in being men and women. And if you're here this morning wondering whether or not there's a purpose that God has beyond the roles that you're filling, maybe you've realized, I hope and pray that you have, that any life that's not defined by relationship with Christ will not be satisfying in the end. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us guardrails to prevent us from misunderstanding. And Father, we don't like guardrails, boundaries, limits. And Father, just in our human nature of brokenness, God, we push back against all those. We try to redefine and to, to dictate so that we might find a peace that is so elusive. And Lord, but you have given us in your word confines within which we and only in which we may find the contentment that we so desire. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to see the roles that you have created us to fill. Lord, and to see how in them there is no inequality in personhood and our dignity. While you may not have given us the right or the, the roles the same roles, the roles that you have created us to fill, the responsibilities that you have given us to fulfill. Father, make us no less a person in your eyes. Father, would you help us as we face a, a culture that desires to, to make us feel less, of less value, to question our identity if we can't do everything our hearts desire. Father, would you help us to see how it's only in relationship with you that we can find the, the contentment that we so desperately desire. Father, we pray that you would help us to find that identity in Jesus. For Christ never changes. Lord, and as, as such, then, no matter what we face, our confidence in who we are will never waver. But when we find it in something else, Father, something temporal, something that may be trending, at the moment, Lord, when it changes, then we'll find ourselves with an identity crisis. When asked the question of who are you, we'll, we won't have an answer, at least not one that satisfies. Father, would you give us grace to find our identity in Jesus, Lord, as men and women created in your image, God, to bring you glory. Father, we thank you that you have given us this word, and we pray that through this word, God, you would lead us to a deeper appreciation of who you are, that we might bring you glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.